Let's turn to John 14. This is not the passage being asked about, but it's the one that addresses the question that was asked. John 14. Uh, The question is this, says Pastor Brian, during Sunday school, I started thinking about when the scriptures were written, particularly the Gospels. Matthew, 60 to 65 A.D., Mark, 50 to 65 A.D., Luke, about 60, John, 85 to 90. I know they were written by divine intervention, but do you think the disciples kept a journal, or did they write all of Christ's words by memory? For Christ's words to be written out is amazing after 50 years. And it it is amazing, uh, but I think one of the key verses on this is what Jesus promised in the Upper Room Discourse. Because he says in John 14, 26, when he's talking about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and here's a key promise, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So this is a key promise that, yes, certainly the the words of Jesus were embedded in the minds of those who heard him. Matthew, one of the apostles, Mark's gospel is, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, Peter is the source behind it, so you could almost call it the gospel of Peter. Luke did his own research. John was one of the apostles. Certainly the the words of Jesus were were just burned into their minds, but it wasn't all left up to them to remember or to journal because of this promise by Jesus. And so, uh, the, and you, as you correctly said, the, the Gospels were written uh, by divine intervention or divine inspiration, and they were written uh, by men, with the exception of Luke, who heard those words, or Mark, who heard them through Peter. And there is this promise of divine inspiration so that their message is accurate. Related to this, I might just add a, a particular note that hit me on my recent trip. Uh, oftentimes you will hear critics of the Bible say, you know, you, you Christians, you believe these old books from these uneducated men, fishermen, or if you go back in the Old Testament, you know, these, these ancient men who, who, you know, lived out in the wilderness. And, and how could you think they were really that literate and that uh, able to, to write with such precision and all of that? And it's a way to try to undermine Scripture. Well, I thought of that when I was on this trip to Ethiopia because the one gentleman I mentioned Uh, whose hut we visited, one of the pastors there. He was bilingual, maybe trilingual. And as I interacted with these men, many of them were what people accuse the the, the writers of Scripture of being, you know, uh, uneducated, illiterate, bush people, etc. How could you realistically expect people like that to be so sharp intellectually and and that literate? Uh, That's just a contradiction. And yet I saw that very same kind of thing firsthand with people that you would look at and say, they have no education, uh, they, 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 have, you know, they don't, haven't had their intelligence developed, uh, you know, how, how smart really are they? And these men were incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, uh, both in their ability to write, their ability to speak. And so uh, just another reminder to us that some of the criticisms that uh, liberal scholars try to pose against Scripture really they just don't stand up. They just don't carry weight. But you're, you're, you have a good observation here on the amazing nature that the gospel's written much later than the events happen, and yet by the promise of divine inspiration are perfectly accurate. All right, next question, back to the gospel of Matthew. Again, it's not specifically on this passage, but this is by a youngster, a little one who came up and added, uh, handed this question to me. 
uh, Matthew chapter 1. And the question is, why was God's Son named Jesus? And that question is answered for us here in Matthew 1, because in verse 20, it's, we are told that Joseph, of course, received the news that his, his uh, wife, she was legally his wife, though they had not consummated the marriage physically. They were betrothed. That's not engaged. That is legally married. They were legally married. He receives word that his wife is pregnant. And ver- he thought about putting her away secretly. He didn't want to embarrass her or discredit her, but he, he felt he had to put her away. Verse 20 says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and here it is, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By the way, if we had time, we could go over into Luke's gospel, where Mary is told to name the child Jesus. So both Joseph and Mary told to name him Jesus, and then we are given the reason why. For he will save his people from their sins. And as I mentioned this morning, Jesus is the English of Jesus, which is Greek, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew Yeshua, which literally means Yahweh saves or uh, salvation. It 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 could even be short for salvation. And so, since Jesus came to save his people from their sins, or to bring salvation, or to announce the message that Yahweh saves, his name was called Jesus, and so specified to both Joseph and Mary. So in answer to your question, I'm looking around for the little one who, who asked it, uh, why was his God's son named Jesus? Because that name uh, depicted and described his activity and his ministry to save people from their sins. All right, next question is this. Uh, Dear Pastor Brian, how come the age of man started decreasing after a while? Like Sarah and Abraham lived a long time. Nowadays, people live to about 80 or 90. How come? What happened to people's long life? I'm sure uh, God blessed them. Is that why? Signed, I don't know if this Curious Carter. So I don't know if it's really Carter, Curious Carter, or, or who it was. But that was the signature put on it. Um, I think there are two answers to the question. Uh, for lack of a better way to say it, internal and external. And I, I uh, meant to check my my data here a little more thoroughly before I came tonight to get this question, but I was in a missions meeting all afternoon. But I think there are two answers as to why, and I break it down into external, internal. External, we know that the, uh, you see that this decreasing of age happened after the flood. So there was a major external change in environment after the flood. And it's, if you read the Genesis account, you'll see these long years, especially chapter 5, is a genealogy. And you have long years in Genesis 5, the flood comes in 6, 7, and 8. And then as you start seeing the record, it really decreases dramatically. I mean, when you go from 969 years, even to someone who lives 130, that's a major decrease. So one, we can attribute it to an external change in environment caused by the flood, which resulted in eventually uh, an ice age and a lot of changes to the atmosphere. But also there is an internal change, for lack of a better way to say it. Uh, God had warned Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Literally in Hebrew, dying you will die. 
Of course, they died spiritually immediately. That is, they were separated from God. That's spiritual death. They began to die physically, and eventually they did die physically. But what also happened, because sin now is in the human race, sin is now in the world, sin is now in the universe, and as sin has permeated our world, it has permeated every aspect of it. Of course, that's why there are so many problems in nature with hurricanes and tornadoes. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this creation is under a curse that includes our own bodies. And in fact, it's pretty well established that the longer we live as a human race, the weaker our genes are becoming. Because the, inf- the influence, or, or maybe that's not the right word, but the infection of sin in the human race is continuing to have devastating consequences. So the combination of the external change in environment, internal weakening of the human race, gene pool, etc., I think are at least two explanations as to why uh, the longevity of life decreased. So you say, I'm sure God blessed them, uh, referring to the people who live long. Well, it wasn't merely some supernatural blessing that God gave to them to live. It was because they were living uh, when the gene pool wasn't as weakened and they were living in a time when the environment wasn't as affected or at least the effects had not uh, permeated as thoroughly. So those are at least two explanations as to why you have this change going on in the book of Genesis. Our next question also from a little one, a little gal handed me this one. She says, if God can do anything, why can't he sin? If he wanted to, could he? Well, uh, when we say, and this is usually what you would study in theology under uh, the three omnis, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. And, you know, omnipresence, God is everywhere present. Uh, um, uh, omniscience, God knows everything. Omnipotence, God can do everything. Or God is all-powerful. And then this is a lot of times what, uh, where people go in their questioning or their, as they sort of take this out to its logical extreme. Well, if God can do anything, the Bible says there are certain things he can't do. That is true. The Bible says he can't lie. Or we could broaden that. God cannot do anything contrary to his nature. He cannot. He cannot do, he cannot acquit the guilty. In other words, he can't just look at a guilty person and say, I'm going to pretend he's innocent. He can't do that. That's one of the the foolish things about people who say, well, if God is a God of love, he ought to just let everybody go to heaven. Uh, You know, he ought to just forgive everyone. God cannot do that. That would be totally contrary to his holiness, his nature. God cannot do things that are contrary to his nature. However, it's important to emphasize this is not a limitation. So when we say God can do anything, but oh, there's something he can't do now, that it's easy to assume, well, that's a limitation on God, or it's somehow a weakness. That is not a weakness in any sense of the term. It is not a limitation. God can do anything consistent with his nature. Also, I would add another one. Uh, God cannot do things that are mutually exclusive or, uh, or foolish. For example, God can't make a square circle. God can't make a rock too big that he can't pick up. God cannot dig a hole too deep for him to fill. Those things are, are mutually exclusive. Again, they're... Um, there's a technical term. I can't think of it now. But, but basically, uh, it would be along the category of, of statements of foolishness. God can't 
do things that are foolish. He can't do things contrary to his nature. He can't do things that are mutually exclusive or foolish. But again, let me emphasize, from a biblical point of view, those are not weaknesses or limitations on God. They're actually things in conjunction with his nature. All right, next question says this. Uh, It says, as Protestant evangelicals, we have a specific understanding of the role of baptism for believers, i.e., it is uh, represented rather than casual insofar as salvific, or causal, insofar as salvation and forgiveness of sins is concerned. In other words, as Protestant evangelicals, we all agree that baptism doesn't save you. Yet, the question continues, yet many church fathers in the first several centuries um, take the view that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins, i.e., just consider the Nicene Creed. What should our response be to these early Christian leaders who seem to teach and biblically support the importance of sacraments, especially baptism in salvation and forgiveness of sins? Uh, This is an excellent question uh, that probably every Christian faces sooner or later if you study church history. Now, if you don't study church history, then you, you know, you can sort of be uh, uh, blissfully ignorant and not know that this is out there. But this is a part of church history. I remember, I, I really appreciate this question because it took me back to my seminary days. I remember one class I had in particular uh, that was called Theology of the Reformers, one of my favorite classes in all of seminary. One entire semester just on the theology of the Reformers, and the entire class was devoted to reading primary sources. In other words, we were required to read not people who wrote about, and the class was primarily about Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, because they were the three primary men in the Reformation. So Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. Uh, so we, we had to read primary sources, not what people said about them or summarize their teaching. We read them. So we read hundreds and hundreds of pages of Calvin and uh, Calvin's Institutes. I read those in their entirety. Uh, Luther's writings. Zwingli didn't write as much, but we we read him. Uh, We read some other reformers, but those are the primary ones. And I remember, I remember as I was going through this class, the, the angst in my heart. Because these men are, and still to this day, these men are my heroes. I mean, if you study church history and you realize the stand that Martin Luther took against the Catholic Church, primarily against two heresies, when he took a stand on sola scriptura, that is, Scripture is our sole authority, not Scripture plus the Pope, Scripture plus the Church. Scripture alone is our authority. Sola scriptura. And sola fide, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved. Not by faith in Christ plus whatever you want to put, the sacraments, etc. I mean, if you, we can't imagine how difficult it was for Luther to take the stand he took, especially an Augustinian monk in the Catholic Church and to be studying primarily the Psalms and Romans and come to those views and to be willing to take a stand. When you put, put it in that context, Luther was a true hero. He was a true hero. But I read Luther, and I read Luther voluminously. And I read some of Luther's statements, not just a few, near the end of his life, where he made some of the grossest anti-Semitic statements any Christian has ever made. 
I mean, statement, Luther was convinced that the Jewish people, if just presented with a clear presentation of the gospel, would, re- would repent and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And so he, early on in his ministry, had a real heart for the Jewish people. And as he presented Messiah Jesus to them over and over again, and they rejected it, Luther became very frustrated with them, very angry at them, and he became very anti-Semitic. I read it firsthand. It's heartbreaking. So what should I do? I tell you, the only proper response, in my opinion, is just to say, you know what? On these issues, the stand he took against the Catholic Church and on Scripture, he was 100% accurate. On this issue of being anti-Semitic and making statements that actually were eventually used by Hitler to justify his attempted extermination of the Jews, uh, his statements there are completely, completely unacceptable. So in response to your question, and by the way, Calvin, you could say the same thing. Calvin may, may have been the greatest theologian ever to live. Again, you read Calvin. He is brilliant. And the thing about Calvin that's so amazing is that he wasn't merely a theologian. He, one thing a lot of people don't know about Calvin is he was an expositor. That is, he preached Scripture verse by verse through books of the Bible. So he didn't develop his theology in a vacuum. He developed it in years and years of exposition. And in fact, I don't remember the exact specifics, but I remember he was preaching through some book, and then all of a sudden he was... He was thrown out of his pulpit, and he was, he was uh, uh, thrown out of it for, I don't remember the, the period of time, but it was, a, it was a long period, like two years or four years or something like that, six years. Finally, he was allowed back in. What do you think he did the first Sunday back in? He picked it up the very next verse that he would have covered when he was thrown out. I mean, that's how committed he was to exposition. Calvin is a hero to me. But also, there are events in his life, decisions he made, some of his statements you just can't justify. You can't accept. And frankly, this, I think, is one of the problems of Reformed theology, is that many Christians who are committed to Reformed theology are committed to Reformed theology, period, whether it lines up with Scripture or not. And this is how they justify, largely how they justify infant baptism. Because they can't find a verse in the Bible to support it, they say, well, Calvin and Luther supported it. Yes, they did. But because Calvin Calvin and Luther supported it, doesn't mean it's right. So, in answer to your question, you you are correct. You study church history. It doesn't matter who you you gravitate to or who you appreciate, uh, who you... uh, you know, who you hold up as a hero, uh, all, all people have, all leaders have feet of clay. And so you, you just can't say, well, because Augustine, one great theologian in the early part of the church, because Augustine held to this, it must be right. Or then later in the Reformation, because Luther did, or, or Calvin did, or Zwingli did, or whatever. I mean, if you study the Reformation, the Anabaptists, They were so persecuted by some of the other reformers, yet their ecclesiology in some areas was the most accurate biblically. No question about it. But there are other areas where the Anabaptists were so far off that you don't like to identify with the Anabaptists. So it's not not a simple picture. You can't just say, you know, well, you know, this guy, he was a, a great leader, a great leader in the church, a great theologian, so we'll take everything he said. The Reformers, in my opinion, the Reformers were great at what they did, 
They reformed, but they just didn't go far enough in their reformation. They didn't reform their ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church, which is why they brought in infant baptism over from the Catholic Church, and they didn't, uh, they didn't reform their eschatology. They blurred distinctions between the church and Israel, so most reformed theology sees no future for Israel. God is done with Israel, and thus you have a basically a replacement theology where we're the new Israel, the true Israel, and we're the replacement Israel. You can't defend that scripturally. You just can't. So uh, I appreciate your question, and I appreciate the insight, the discernment you have. And so I would answer it by saying, what should our response be to these early Christian leaders who seem to teach a, a, and, and try to biblically support the importance of these things? Uh, let me give you a verse, uh, one, one of the great verses for all of us, uh, for all of the Christian life. It's in Acts 17. Let's turn to Acts 17. As you're turning there, when I was, again, just a brief story, when I was in Ethiopia and I was teaching on the Holy Spirit, I had one of the pastors raise his hand and say, you know, this is completely different than what I viewed, so should I change my view? And I said, no, don't change your view. Do not change your view because I'm saying this. And I showed them this verse and I said, if, if what I am teaching doesn't line up with Scripture, please don't change your view. Don't change it just because I'm saying it. In Acts 17, 11, many of you know this verse referring to the Bereans. It says these were more fair-minded, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. So what should be our attitude or our approach toward church fathers, men and women in church history, great leaders, great servants of God? Uh, what should our response be toward their writings? Here it is. Here it is. Receive with all readiness of mind, readiness of mind, be eager to learn from them. Be eager to learn from those who have gone before us. But don't forget the rest of the verse. They received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, if what Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or Augustine or just go down the, the list of anybody you want to put in the list or your favorite today, uh, Swindoll, MacArthur, uh, David Jeremiah, whoever you want to put in the list. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter who it is. Our attitude is that we receive with all readiness and search the Scriptures to find out if it's so. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, you can't embrace it, no matter how much you respect the person that you are receiving that info from. So great question. Thank you for uh, submitting it. Next question, 1 Kings 5. Once again, it's not on this passage, but I think this passage will help us answer it. 1 Kings chapter 5, and while you're turning there, I will turn to the actual verse that was being asked about and read that, but we'll answer it from 1 Kings chapter 5. The, the verse that's being asked about is First Chronicles 22.8. Let me read it to you. Verse Chronicles 22.8. Um, uh, but the word of this is David. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And the question is this. Good, another insightful question. Why did the shedding of blood disqualify David from building the temple? Had not God commanded them to wipe those people out? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, actually, the, the wiping out was more back in Joshua's day. But it is true that the wars that David fought 
were wars, he often sought the Lord before he went to those wars. So still, your, your question is a valid one. And the way 1 Chronicles 22.8 seems to read is that somehow that disqualified David. However, in looking at it this afternoon, number of cross-references, I'm not, I'm not saying that it did not disqualify David, but I can't find any other passage that gives a reason why it disqualified David. And in fact, even in the First Chronicles 22, the very next verse, it says after verse 8, verse 9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, and the name means peace, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. So that adds a little bit different slant on it. At first, verse 8 sounds pretty negative, like, David, you've shed blood, that disqualifies you. But then you read on, and it says, Behold, you're going to have a, a son, and I'm going to give him rest, so his role won't be to carry out war. I'm going to give rest in his day, so he won't have to be a man of war. He won't have to be preoccupied. And it's interesting that here, we're not sure how to take this Hebrew word, but in verse 8, you have made great wars. That may be in a positive sense. In other words, David, your role has been to do great things militarily, but your son is going to do great things construction in construction, in, re, in erecting a temple. And another verse that seems to bring even more merit to that is when Solomon in 1 Kings 5, verse 3, is talking. He says, you know how my father, verse 3, 1 Kings 5, 3, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. So there, the angle is a little bit different. The nuance is, well, he couldn't do it because he was preoccupied with war. So all that to say, because I can't find another passage that tells specifically why David was disqualified for shedding blood, and your point is a valid one, a lot of times he sought God and God told him, yes, you go to war against these people and defeat them. And these other statements, it may be, I'm only suggesting a possibility, it may be not so much a disqualification, but more rather a simple issue of role. David was a man of war, a man who shed blood. That was his role. Uh, but God gave peace to Solomon. His role would then be to follow up. And God wanted Solomon, whose name means peace, to build a house in times of peace and to promote peace. So just a suggestion to think about or chew on, um, and you can continue to cross-reference also. But I couldn't find a passage delineating the specific reason it would disqualify. All right, next question says this. Let's turn to James 5. Again, it's not on James 5, but it, this will illustrate this, this question. And this is... Um, Going back to last month when we celebrated around the Lord's table, and I used Isaiah 53 for the devotional. And uh, it says, when you preached on Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, we read that Jesus gave his soul as an offering. Is this different than the understanding I've had that Jesus gave his life? And I would say that for the most part, no, your understanding has not been inaccurate. Because in a, this is almost a Hebraism, in a Hebrew way of thinking, soul, nephesh, uh, suke in Greek, doesn't matter which language, because it, looking at it from a Hebrew lens or a Hebrew point of view, is often used in Scripture as synonymous with life. Now, not always. 
Sometimes the term soul can be used to refer to the immaterial part of man, you know, the spirit of man or the soul of man. But you have to take each statement in its context uh, to determine, is the author trying to make a distinction or is he just using them synonymously? Now here's an example of a very, very Jewish man, James, brother of our Lord, half-brother of our Lord, devout Jewish man. His Jewishness comes through in this letter clearly. Uh, in fact, he, was, he eventually became one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church because he was so respected by Jewish people. He was as Jewish as you can get. And you see him, uh, this same thought process coming through. Now, again, this is in Greek, not Hebrew, but it still illustrates the same point. Chapter 5, verse 19 Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, so you have a brother or sister who's wandering from the truth, a, a brother or sister in Christ wandering, someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, now this reads, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Many commentators suggest, and I would agree with them, that James is not using the term soul here like the soul, the inner part, like, well, you're going to save his soul from hell because if that's what it is saying, now you've got a problem because you've got the implication that you're turning a brother around or he's going to lose his salvation. Now you've got even more major problems contradicting other passages. So many commentators, and I would, I would agree, suggest that what James is saying here is that if you see a brother heading the wrong path, you need to try to turn him back and let him know who he turns a sinner from the error's way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins, many more sins that could have been committed until he died or until the Lord took him. As you know, in the first century, it was not uncommon for the Lord to take a believer's life when he was in sin and would not turn from it. First Corinthians 11, the Lord's table, for this reason many of you are sick and even sleep. John talks about a sin unto death. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, not uncommon in the first century for someone, a believer, to be disciplined by the Lord unto death. That's probably what James is referring to here. But regardless, just to illustrate the point, here James seems to be using the term soul not to be, refer to the in, inward part, the spirit, but the person's life. And there are many other examples I could show you, both in Old Testament and New. Suffice it to say, your question is, is this different than the understanding I've had that Jesus gave his life? No, it isn't. He gave his soul. He gave his very being. He gave his life. Those are all synonymous. All right, final question. Hebrews chapter 10, just prior to James's Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 10. And um, the question is this. Uh, hi, my kids ask whether it is appropriate for Chris, Christian businesses to open Sunday. I said that I thought it wasn't, that probably wasn't a problem except for covenant theologians who treated Sunday as the Sabbath, but it doesn't take away from Hebrews 10.25 comments. And I would say I completely concur with what you said here. Um, there is a misunderstanding in Christianity that does come over from covenant theology that since we are the new Israel, now we are, uh, we are under the law and under the Sabbath law. And therefore, they have somehow, without biblical support, shifted the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. That's a, a misconception in so many Christians' minds that the new Sabbath is Sunday. There is not one shred of biblical evidence that Sunday is the Sabbath. Never has been, never will be. Saturday has always been the Sabbath, always will be. Sunday in the New Testament is called the Lord's Day. It's not the Sabbath. And so 
the question is, is it, you know, just even take it out of this room, is it wrong to go out Sunday afternoon and chop wood? Well, if you are really committed to covenant theology and you believe the Sabbath is Sunday, yes, you go out and chop wood on Sunday, you're in sin. I mean, in, in the Pentateuch, a guy was gathering sticks on the Sabbath, it was Saturday, and they killed him for it, rightly so. They asked the Lord what they should do, and the Lord said he should be put to death. So you go out and chop wood Sunday afternoon, we'll have a killing party at your place, right? Is that accurate? No, no. The Sunday is not Sabbath. But, so, this is a very practical question. What about Christian businesses? Well, though Sunday's not the Sabbath, there is an issue that you rightly brought up, and that's Hebrews 10.25, which says this. It says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So Sunday is the Lord's day, and we are supposed to honor that day, not as the Sabbath where you, where you can't do anything. You know, uh, some little kids are taught you sit around all Sunday afternoon in your little Lord Fauntleroy suit on the couch with your hands crossed because it's the Sabbath. That's not the issue. Uh, but it is the Lord's day, and so when the Lord's, on the Lord's day, when His people meet, that should be a priority, and that should be honored. So, what is the answer to this question? Well, if a Christian business uh, is of such nature that, you know, you're open to, from one to four in the afternoon, is that a sin? I don't think you could defend biblically that there's something sinful about that. But as a Christian, you want to honor the Lord's day, you want to meet with God's people, and you don't want to require your employees to miss the Lord's Day gathering. So that's another issue you have to consider. So there are several things that you need to consider, but you cannot defend the view that it is inherently a sin to do anything on Sunday afternoon, or whether that's you know having your business open. Now, a lot of Christians just prefer to not have their business open on Sunday to honor the Lord's Day in that way. Great. That's, that's totally valid. But as long as you understand it through Hebrews 10.25, not through the lens of Sabbath. So, good question. In fact, all of them, great questions tonight, and uh, thanks for turning those in. Uh, Lord willing, we'll try again in December to have one more before the end of the year, one more Bible Q&A. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together tonight, uh, for the opportunity to meet, to sing, to praise, to uh, send out, to... Uh, look at your word. Thank you so much for, um, for the privilege we have of, of just living here. It's obviously something so fresh on my mind just coming back from Ethiopia to see uh, the, the conditions our brothers and sisters in Christ live in and, and the, the price they pay, the difficulty. And, and uh, may we be reminded of the statement of Jesus, to whom much is given, much is required. And certainly to us you have given much, and of us much will be required. And even as you said to Abraham, I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing. And that is certainly true of us. You have blessed us, and with that comes the responsibility to be a blessing to people around us here in our community, to people around us in our state, in our nation, and around the world. May you be pleased to use us to be a blessing as you see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.